1: this is Donald Miller, author of Building a Story Brand. And if you want to level up your relationships, you should be listening to the Build Your Network podcast with my good friend, Travis Chappell.
2: If you're tired of the old way of networking, the business cards, the awkward conversations, and the aggressive pitches, but you know how crucial your network is to your success in life, then you're in the right place. Welcome to Build Your Network, the only top rated show committed to helping you master content networking foster real relationships, increase your authority, and build the network of your dreams. Listen in on conversations with world-class entrepreneurs, authors, thought leaders, and more, as we deconstruct their best strategies for your success. So get ready to burn your business cards, ditch the name tag, and discover the new way to network with your host, Travis
0: Chappell. Hey, what's going on everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Build Your Network. Today, I am sitting down with an absolute legend, Don Miller. Don is the CEO of Business Made Simple, an online platform that teaches business professionals everything they need to know to grow a business. He's the host of the Business Made Simple podcast and is the author of several books, including the number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, Building a Story Brand. He lives and works in Nashville, Tennessee with his wife, Elizabeth. Guys, it's going to be such a fun conversation that I have with Don, all about marketing and branding and everything in between. But before we get into that conversation really quickly, if you are a podcast host or a content host, or you like to be a guest on podcasts or on other pieces of content, uh, then you're going to want to head over to guestio.com. That's guestio.com. It's a uh, software that my team and I put together recently. Uh, we're still in the startup phase that helps connect high-level podcast hosts and content hosts with high-level guests for their shows. Uh, So if you are one of those two types of users, then be sure to head over to guestio.com, set up your free profile, and start browsing through some of the amazing guests and shows that we have built up over there. That's guestio.com. Don, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show. I'm uh, super excited to chat with you for a little bit.
1: I'm grateful to be here, Travis. Thanks for having
0: me. Yes, sir. Of course. So I want to take it all the way back here just to build some context for those listening. Uh, we always find that it's helpful to kind of start at the beginning uh, because it gives us a little bit better context for what has come out of your life's work now um, as you see it. So let's uh, rewind the clock. Maybe 11-year-old Donald Miller, <laughs> you know, set yeah. the scene for us. Where'd you grow up? What were your parents doing? And how'd you like school? All that good stuff. Uh, you know,
1: 11-year-old Don is uh, is not the same. The, you know, I think we could all look back and see the transformation that uh, has taken place in our lives. But you know, we grew up hard. I won't lie. We we grew up in in south of Houston, Texas, and my mom never made a living wage, and uh, dad split when I was two, and so all that you know leads to a lot of craziness, and 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 so I grew up really just trying to survive, and the family was just trying to survive at all times. That said, I had a delightful childhood. My my mom uh, did such an amazing job raising my sister and I. She is uh, she she was she passed. She's my hero. But 11-year-old Don is, um, you know, there's not, parents early on around, mom wouldn't get home till six or seven o'clock and, you know, we would just sort of raise ourselves and uh, my sister and I weren't super close. So 11-year-old Don was an introvert, used to play, you know, basketball in the driveway. was my, was what I would do and ride my bike around and, and those were lonely years, but I'm so grateful for them because now, you know, I can sit alone in a cabin for a month and finish a book. And there's not a lot of people who can do that. Not that I do that very often because my wife won't let me, but um, <laughs> but I'm I'm capable of that. And so, uh, you know, a lot of the hardship that we had, but not only that, but, you know, I read an article once, Travis, that said, you know, one of the differences between really successful CEOs and sort of great CEOs, you know, great to really great, one of the main common denominators of those who make that next leap, that highest leap, is they grew up poor. I really never would have imagined that. But there's this kind of scarcity mindset of where we're going to where we're going to get our next meal that stays with you even after you succeed. And that that uh, hunger, that literal hunger turns into a a sort of hunger for success or hunger for security. And so the point is a lot of stuff we struggled with when we were kids has turned around and blessed us. And I feel that way very much so.
0: How did that play into your decision making for post high school in your career? Like when you were in <laughs> high school, did you have any idea you'd end up be doing, you know, the things that you're no. doing now?
1: No, no clue. I, I didn't go to college. We really never talked about college in my home because it wait, was wait, just wait, wait, wait. So,
0: so, So you're saying that you did not go to college. No. But you have a successful career.
1: I have a successful career and, and my curriculum is taught at universities like Vanderbilt University. So I'm not, okay. I mean, you tell me how that happened. Just, just no making idea, sure. Yeah. Just
0: making sure that there wasn't faulty oh, wiring story.
1: here. <laughs> here's a funny story. There's a guy on my staff who's a good friend. His name is uh, Dr. JJ Peterson. JJ did his doctoral thesis on story brand framework, which is my, the framework that I created. Mm. And then Vanderbilt University called JJ and said, Hey, can you come in and explain this to us? Well, then they asked JJ to be an adjunct professor teaching the story brand framework. And literally JJ goes in and teaches my framework, but I'm not allowed to teach the framework. And he's literally the world's leading academic on the, on the framework. And so it's just a strange world. There's no yeah. question about it. And, and that's nothing against Vanderbilt. That's just the way the rules work, you know?
0: Yeah, right. And,
1: uh, and I love it, but no, I never went to college. And um, I did, you know, weirdly know when I was in high school, that I wanted to be a New York Times bestselling author, and I don't know how I got that because I wasn't very—I I wasn't making good grades. Mm. But I—I I just had this inkling that that I really wanted to express myself through the written word, and that happened about ten years later.
0: Did you and, enjoy reading at all? No, not really. Isn't that strange,
1: mm. Travis? I didn't. Yeah. I wasn't a ferocious reader. I became one sure when I was about twenty-two or twenty-three, and I am today. But I—I I didn't grow up reading books. I really have now that I think about it. I have no idea how I sort of foresaw the idea. I wanted to become a writer, hmm. and then and then wrote and, wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and finally sat down in Common Grounds Cobb Shop in Portland, Oregon, where I lived. Wrote one paragraph that I knew was the first paragraph of a book I would finish, hmm. and uh, and somehow about a year later, that book was done and got my first book out of me. Which was very good. It sold. It sold like twenty three copies.
0: <laughs> it sold nothing. <laughs> and twelve of them were family members. Yeah. Uh, don't, t- Travis,
1: Do you agree that? Don't you think that part of success for a lot of people is delusional optimism? I mean, oh, it's just yeah. like this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: Especially, especially when you don't come from much. You know, when you when you're yeah, just trying like to figure it all out on your own. Yeah. yeah.
1: Exactly. I was. I will say, I was delusionally optimistic from the time I was a kid, to, and I'm still delusionally optimistic. I mean, it's like anything <laughs> can happen.
0: That's not a bad perspective to have on the world, though. You know, it's no, obviously worked out pretty well for so you. There's so much
1: to be sad about, right? We've sure. Had, yeah, like exactly. this, we need more delusional optimists.
0: <laughs> I agree. I agree. How do you know when you have a good book idea, right? There, oh, ideas a really are question. a dime a dozen, right? Ideas are a dime a dozen. It's execution on ideas and on an idea that's going to become something that's widely accepted or something that's going to pioneer an industry. Like, how do you know when you got something?
1: Well, the first test is, is yourself, you know, are you interested in this topic enough to more or less obsess about it for a year? Because that's about what it takes. I mean, some people get a book done quicker, but you know, are you, are you, are you going to be interested enough to finish this thing? That's sign number one. If you are, then there are probably thousands of people out there who would also be interested enough to read it. You know, so the first test of it's interesting is uh, that, you know, whether or not you can stick with it. Ernest Hemingway said um, the sign of a great writer or something like that. I can't remember how he worded it. The sign of great writers, they have a built-in shockproof shit detector. <laughs> <laughs> and really what he was saying, if you listen to him, is he's saying they know what's interesting. They, mm. you know, they know. And uh, and I think I've got about a B B plus on that. If you look at somebody like Steinbeck, they got an A plus, you know that this is just interesting and they know how to make something interesting. You know, Annie Dillard is a literary figure. You know, she writes about fish swimming up a Creek and ants climbing up a blade of grass. And I'm in, she makes it interesting. (laughs) Yeah. She just makes it interesting. And um, so I think it's, a, a lot of it is intuitive. And then once you pass that hurdle, it's pretty good to, I, you know, I confess, I test material over, you know, I'm having lunch with somebody and I'll, I'll test it. I'll test something that I'm thinking about and see if even in casual conversation, they're interesting.
2: Mm.
1: I'll post I'll post a snippet from the book I'm working on on Instagram just to see how many likes and comments I get. Mm. You know, you kind of test it out externally second. And then, of course, the publisher is a really great test because they they're not going to bet on anything that they don't think has a shot at making the money. Yeah, right. And so there's there's the three prong test, the three levels of testing, right there. That uh, if you're working on a book, that that will help.
0: Is it intimidating at all? And I've kind of always wondered this: um, is it intimidating at all to write a book on marketing? I mean, which is really, you know, your your story brand is a marketing and branding book about storytelling, yeah. right? it intimidating to write, a, to me, it, it would seem to be intimidating to write a book on marketing because if it doesn't do well, then how proven <laughs> are the concepts in your own book, right? You know what I mean? Like there's so many books on marketing. It's like, oh, like you said, it sold 23 copies. It's like, well, maybe if you took your own advice, it would some You know, you know than
1: Thank God I actually thought of that after I published the book. And I'm so glad it never entered into my head before because I would have been <laughs> scared as I could possibly be. Sure. I mean, you know, does it work? And yeah. uh, but I really I think because we developed the framework and worked with it uh, and taught it to so many businesses. I mean, there were mm-hmm. probably over a thousand businesses that we took through it. Yeah. And I saw what happened to those businesses. These, these businesses were doubling in sales. By only changing the words on their website, only changing the words in their sales scripts and their elevator pitches and their, you know, the the keynote of the CEO or whatever, just changing the way they talked about their product, what we were seeing significantly increase in sales. And the great thing is words are free. So you're talking a free way to double revenue. That's ridiculous. And so we were seeing that over and over and over with nonprofits, for profits, every you know, industry agnostic. And so by the time I was writing the book, I knew I didn't have any doubt. And, yeah, it, wasn't, and really, it wasn't just it was theory. Almost, no, it wasn't yeah. theory. It was it was making people a lot of money, and not only that, I had developed a little bit of frustration with the number of marketing agencies that were, uh, and I, in my opinion, they were ripping people off. They were charging them for marketing collateral that wasn't making them any money, their their client any money. So I was a little frustrated about what was happening in the industry, and I wanted to give people a book for twenty bucks that solved that problem. And and I think that's one of the reasons the book actually took off. I think uh, if I would have been, if I would have doubted that process, it it probably would have, people would have felt it as they read the book. Instead, I was just like, don't screw around with this. Like these people will rip you off. Let's get this right. Let's sit down and do a little work here and uh, clarify your message so your marketing collateral works. And and so I think that probably came through in the book.
0: Sure. Yeah, so let's get kind of back into your story then really quickly. Uh, So you write your first book and it sells 23 copies. Where do you go from there? <laughs>
1: 23, I think it was like 21. Was <laughs> yeah, you're uh, exaggerating
0: to make it sound better than it was, yeah.
1: Yeah, well, I really was pretty arrogant. I thought I was the next John Steinbeck. It was a memoir about a cross-country trip in a Volkswagen band with a, with a buddy. It was a true story. And I just thought I was the great writer and uh, I discovered I wasn't. <laughs> So I was a, There was a season of kind of grief, you know, of just like, I thought I was special and I was gifted. Yeah. And thank God for that, because the next book was on the New York Times bestsellers list for 42 weeks. Mm. And um, I had a re- I think I had a much more balanced perspective. I mean, the the I knew what it I knew what it was like. I, I felt more than I felt like my second book was this work of art. I felt really lucky. And I felt very, very grateful to the people who helped me. And it didn't take off for the, till the second year. And hmm. even one of my roommates uh, was with an organization that told his bosses about it, and they ended up buying like a hundred thousand copies, which helped it sell. Wow! You know, so there were there were actual buddies involved in my success. And I think if my first book would have taken off, I would have become a little entitled, you know, punk. And sure. uh, instead, it I became a. a a slightly smaller entitled punk.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like it's like uh, like Mike Tyson says, right? If you, everybody thinks they're prepared until they get punched in the face they or get something like that. Punched in the that. face, yeah, man. Right.
1: You know, and the only thing I give myself kudos for is after a failure, writing another one because it does. Uh, it takes a long what... time.
0: So and I was going to say thing I
1: go back and I say good job Miller like good job getting back up and getting hit in the face again you know
0: <laughs> Yeah right that, that's what I was going to say is like the coolest part about that story is that the 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 phrase that you used uh, just now when you're talking about it is uh, the cool thing was that the next book so you like you you confirmed your feelings of doubt and insecurity and all these uh, negative right. words that you would describe yourself as feeling during that time period but there still came a next book why? Yeah, why? yeah. Why not quit after that?
1: I, you know, I think it's probably like you and, and some things that you do, and maybe even podcasting. You, you, I didn't feel like I had a choice. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, this is what I was born to do. And and uh, I didn't have any more choice about whether to write the next book than I did about whether to eat food. I just needed it. I needed to sit down and get... These were memoirs. Because what, what your audience may not know is I wrote seven memoirs that have nothing to do with business before I wrote my first business book. Wow. So, you know, that was seven years of studying story and studying literature and studying writing, which thank God, because I used all that in my business book.
0: Yeah. And um,
1: so I just had to, I had to write and um, I didn't, I mean, I, I certainly thought I was writing something that could be commercially viable, but. It just wouldn't have mattered. I think if you'd have said, Don, you'll never publish this book, I would have said, that hurts. And uh, a week later, I think I just stopped wiping my eyes and I sat down and I'm writing it anyway. And, uh, you know, I got no choice. So I'm going to be a very poor person holding a typewriter. (laughs) That's what I (laughs) could That's all I can do.
0: (laughs) Can you you speak into that for a second, Don? Because I... I guess my question is, is kind of, when do you know when you should continue to do something that you're not showing immediate yeah. results in? And when do you know that you're quitting too early? You know what I mean? Like when, when at what point are you quitting too early? And at what point are you sticking in it for too long? And you should probably focus on something else. That oh, that's better such a,
1: it's such a great question. It's so extremely hard to answer, right? Because delusional optimism will get you very, very far in life. And I really mean that delusional optimism. When, you know, I was just talking to a young woman the other day, 13 years old, she she came over to the house with her dad and her two brothers, they, they just wanted to come by and say hi. And um, she said she was a really slow reader. She's dyslexic. And I said, you know, me too. I mean, I'm not dyslexic, but I, I am a slow reader. It takes me a long time to metabolize information and stuff. And I said, the key though, is don't quit. Don't quit. Keep like, I'll outpace mm. anybody. I really will. I'll, i I'm not fast and I'm not smart, but I, you will not outwork me. And, uh, and if you don't quit, you have great success. So that's part of it. Then there's another part, there's probably like three or four books, at least three that I got good 40, 50,000 words into and then quit. And yeah, really? the reality was sometimes it was this, this actually, I'm now convinced that this is an interesting commercial. You know, people mm. aren't going to read it or, this is just almost too controversial to share. It's gonna make me look stupid for sharing this theory or something like that. And, or it's not right for my career, where I wanted to go. I was actually comforted a little bit by an interview I saw in 60 Minutes last night. I've been out of town, off the grid, so I I was catching up on my my, uh, DVR. And 60 Minutes covered the career of Prince, who died five years ago. And um, they said he's got like dozens of albums that he never released. Yeah, he released 39 albums, and he has a, he has dozens that he didn't release, including like wow. five have come out I think since he died. So you know wow. the guy was prolific, and one of his yeah, backup singers prolific, and yeah. producers said, you know, how do you feel about that? I mean, you're just not going to release it. You worked for a long time on that. And he said, ah, you know, I don't really look back. You know, it's just let's do what's next. Mm. I don't really look back. That's none of that's precious to me. And um, so I think you know that there's a lot there there's a lot, you know, if you're going to be a successful writer, at least, and probably in anything, um, you've got to just keep going, keep going, keep going out of the mass of production will come become some things will be commercially viable, some things won't. But if, if you're writing just to publish, I don't think you're going to be a, a, you may get a good book or two, but you're not going to be a career writer, a career writer writes, because they have to write, they just have to and what gets published out of that gets published and what doesn't, doesn't, hmm. but it doesn't matter. It's not why I wrote it. I wrote it because I just have to. And, um, part of it is, it's just, it's just every book is a big puzzle and my wife loves doing jigsaw puzzles. I've, I've never understood it. I'm like, if you're going to ask me to sit down and solve a problem, you're going to pay me a lot of money. So this jigsaw company, <laughs> I don't see, you know, if I'm going to do a jigsaw puzzle, the company better yeah. send me a check, <laughs> yeah, where's the time. check. Yeah. Put the check in the box, please. Yeah. So, uh, <laughs> But my version of the jigsaw puzzle is the book. I love getting up in the morning, 7 a.m. to 9 a.m., almost doing five days a week, and um, and sitting at the computer and trying to figure out what this book's about. Yeah, I just enjoy I enjoy the puzzle of it.
0: This episode of the show is brought to you by Indeed. We are driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate is not to search at all. It's to match and match with Travis. Just go to indeed.com slash Travis right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed here on the podcast. Indeed.com slash Travis. Terms and conditions apply. If you need hire, you need Indeed. Can you give us a glimpse of what it truly takes to become a New York Times bestselling author? Because it obviously was a goal that you had in mind from when your time time you were in high school and actually ended up happening for you now multiple, multiple times. You know, what can you tell us about that process?
1: You know, everybody listening, don't dismiss me based on the first thing I say because there's more. But one of the ingredients is luck. It really is. One of the ingredients is luck because, you know, I know people who've written great books that, and not only that, I have friends who are musicians. You know, I live here in Nashville who who write beautiful records that everybody should know about, and they don't hit. And sometimes a really good book just won't hit. You know, there's go on Amazon. There's five million books. You know, one of them is the number one one, and yeah. uh, and so you know you can't tell me there's 4,999,000 bad books you know they they're just they just didn't hit number 1 so luck is part of it i think uh, what goes into it is you know a lot of work writing a good book i think most books that hit the new york times are have something of value to offer you know they they may not be well written but people are buying it for a reason uh there's it's either really entertaining it's a great story they're solving a problem that you know, if you write a book about stopping smoking, it doesn't have to be that great. You just help people stop smoking, and smokers are going to buy it. And hopefully, there's enough of them that can put you on the New York Times bestsellers list. I, I mean that cryptically. You know? yeah, so I hope right. there's not actually enough smokers to do that, <laughs> but um, you know, so you're solving a problem. And then, then I'll get into the real nitty-gritty of it. My second book hit the New York Times for forty something weeks. I've never had a book do that since. I've had books, plenty of books on the list for three or four or five weeks, whatever, but never something like that. I didn't even have an email list when that book hit. That book was pure word of mouth and, you know, it did great. Then I started capturing email addresses later in my career and I could email fans when I released a book and that helped. I would say at least two of the, I don't don't know how many books I've had on the New York Times, um, but at least two of those would not have hit the Times had I not had a, an email list, in other words, they, mm. you know, word of mouth just wouldn't have done it.
0: Because the concept wasn't big enough, because the total addressable market wasn't big enough. Like, why? Why do you say that?
1: Because it's really hard to hit the list. You know, the market was big enough, the concept was good enough, but you've got to get between seven and ten thousand people to buy that book in the first week, and that means probably fifty thousand email addresses. Mm. You know, because not everybody's going to buy it. So, but the good thing is. know if you really want to be a commercially successful writer start collecting email addresses now because i can go to any publisher in the world and say i've got 450,000 email addresses and i've got a book sitting here and they're going to sign me sure you know unless there's something immoral about it which i don't write that stuff they're going to sign me so you know they're trying to make money and um you know it's a part of the game as being a writer is is getting that audience and developing your tribe and being commercially viable now, if you want to write a book and you don't really care how many sell, because there's all sorts of other great reasons to write a book, you know, ignore my advice. But, um, but, so if you think about it, it's luck, it's skill, it's hard work, and it's self promotion. So, luck, skill, hard work, self promotion. Now, you get to control three fourths of that.
0: <laughs> yeah. Right.
1: Well, I don't know if you can. You know, skill is something you can learn. Hard work is something anybody can do, and promotion is something if you're humble. You can do it. If you're arrogant, you won't self-promote because you want to be so special. Everybody comes to you. And I wrote that book. It's my first book. It didn't sell wow. any copies. Oh,
0: what, an, what an interesting way to phrase. Oh no, that. people
1: who are arrogant don't self-promote. People who who are humble, you know, it's embarrassing to go out and talk about yourself. You know, you gotta be humble to do it. You gotta be, you gotta get over yourself and believe that your message is important enough for people to read. And then you'll go out and promote. Yourself. If you're not promoting your book, you don't think it's medicine for anybody's pain. Yeah. And if you, if it's medicine for somebody's pain, I think you have a moral obligation to go out and talk about
0: it. Yeah. If you truly, th- yeah. If you truly think that you created something yeah, you're that can people. solve a problem.
1: Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah. You're helping people. Why wouldn't you? It's not about you. It's about, you know, it's about your problem being solved and you, yeah, you get a little bit of money for that. You get your name on a book and you deserve that. That's, that's, that's great because you're out there really providing value for people.
0: So this is the Builder Network podcast. We talk a lot about relationships. (laughs)
1: we forgot to mention the network Yeah.
0: (laughs) Um, so uh, along those lines I want to ask you a couple questions on that the first one that I always ask though every guest ever come on the show we're coming up on 600 episodes now so it's quite a few
1: congratulations that's awesome
0: Uh, thank you very much yeah we're we're super happy with it so um, we've gotten a number of different types of answers for this question and this is probably the book that I want to write so I'm curious to hear what your perspective is who you know or what you know on, which of those two is the more valuable asset in life, and why? Oh man!
1: Well, I'm going to go with who you know, but you know we're at a 51 percent versus 49 percent ratio there, sure. Because you can't be dumb; you have (laughs) to be. You really do have to be competent. Yeah. But you know, if you reverse engineer your life, you can see that a lot of the doors were opened by somebody, and not just doors open, but somebody knew how to put together technology that you needed, and you know, and, and I credit, you know, I got married eight years ago. And I got married at 42. I got married late at well, seven and a half years ago, I'm 49. And um, my career absolutely exploded after I got married. And it's because I have such a stable home. I mean, I didn't have an unstable mm-hmm. life. I've had a great single life. But you know, there's no drama in my house. Betsy's an amazing person who it's who I know. It's it's who, who I know, and who feeds yeah. my soul. And who opens doors you know it's a lot of who you know and that but that's not just luck that's also you because you're the kind of person that a quality person wants to get to know right so you're in control of a lot of that too you know you're the person who who you know i always look at relationships that if you invest time in me or invest something in me i want to give you a bigger return than you invested So if you're going to divest some friendship in me, I want to be a better friend. I, You know, maybe I'm just a competitive guy, but I want to be a better friend to you than you are to me. And that, you know, I want to be a better husband to Betsy than she is a wife to me, which I've never once single in a day accomplished that, but I still want to do it. And (laughs) it's uh, a worthy
0: pursuit. Yeah, It's a
1: worthy pursuit. Yeah. I think all men are in that boat. Like there's, you can't give me a break. (laughs) And, uh, you know, so that to me is, uh, you know, you're in those relationships. However, you know, when you get your opportunity to take the shot you got to make the shot right
0: you right. know who
1: you know may get you on the team but it's not going to score points yeah you got it you have to be competent so i think i'd put it really close to 50 50. you know and that's one of the reasons travis you know in the world that we live in now i started a black owned business cohort because people are tribalistic they tend to choose people who look like them and think like them and act like them and so you know the black lives matter movement really showed me gosh even though i grew up dirt poor Really work my butt off to get to where I'm at. I believe that white privilege is a thing, and I believe that I was doors open for me because I knew people who were in you know who had a company. You know, my first job, guy gave me a, a job working a jackhammer in August in Houston. It was tough, it was tough as nails, stuff. but yeah, really hard. And um, you know, but then you know, then the guy gave me a job in publishing, the guy gave me a job in. There are just more white people than there are. There are minorities. Therefore, there are more people looking out for people who look like me than there are that not, not necessarily racism. It's definitely subconscious bias. But, you know, I started a black owned business cohort because I wanted to contribute to getting more people, more opportunities and giving and introducing people who have not had doors open for them unfairly yeah. and unjustly. And so we, I think we can. Those of us who've succeeded a little bit can look around and say, "Hey, how can I even the playing field here? How can I be one of the people that they know that is gonna get them a leg up?
0: Yeah, that's, and, that's uh, gonna put them on.
1: You know, like that's right. Yeah, so many just, people, you know, give, so give many everybody stories a chance, take like like a shot. Yeah. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. everybody in my black-owned business cohort is more successful than me. So I learn more from them. <laughs> I learn more from them than they learn from me. That's for hey, sure. But
0: that tells me that you're doing the networking <laughs> thing right, though, right? Is there you, you go? Know, yeah. I want to be the smartest one be in the like. world. Like,
1: that's oh never kind of ever. Way. I love that. You're the only guy I I say that all the time. You're the only guy I've ever heard say it uh say it first and it's just <laughs> it is a a fundamental principle. If you're the smartest guy in the room, you ain't learning anything. Yeah, you're
0: in the wrong room. Go find a different Yeah, one. wrong yeah.
1: room. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we call it um at my company we have a value we call it swimming out past the breakers. So mm-hmm. what that means is you're out past the place in the ocean where you feel comfortable. You're not you're not out there going nuts, but you're You're just right at that place where your toes only touch every fourth or fifth wave going (laughs) down. You're like, yeah, yeah. we we want you slightly uncomfortable. So we want to put you in a position doing things that if you're slightly uncomfortable, you're growing. And uh, I think that's true in relationships, too. If you're slightly uncomfortable because this person is so successful and so far ahead of you, you're growing, you're growing.
0: Yeah, that's so true. I, I've so many times been in situations like that where I'm like, do I, should I even be here right now? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I just, I, I, I'll just slip life. out the back. Like nobody's going to, you know, notice, yeah. you know? Um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, to your point, I mean, if you, if, if there's no discomfort, there's, there's no growth and, no. Uh, and no. you know, You got to ask yourself what version of life you want to live—one where there's growth or one where there's stagnation. And uh, if the answer is growth, then you got to get—you got to get familiar with being uncomfortable.
1: Here's a good story. I I, I just got back, Travis. You should know about this. I'm gonna—I'm not even gonna plug my company. I'm gonna plug this guy's company. (laughs) I went on a wilderness adventure with a group called Wilderness Collective, and uh, my buddy Steve actually runs the company. It was me and five friends plus four of their staff members. We did 350 miles or so. All around the Grand Canyon on motorcycles and UTVs. And no showers for four days. We ate great food because they they actually have a guy in a sag wagon who's a chef. That's awesome. Uh,
0: but I mean, we were
1: filthy, sleeping on the ground, you know, you're freezing at night. I mean, it was like, it was rough. But um, I'm in a UTV going 60, 70 miles per hour through the desert. I mean, treacherous terrain, like creek bed kind of stuff. And all the motorcycles are way back behind us because they've got to go much slower. But Steve, who runs the runs the company, is flying on a motorcycle ahead of me, and I can't keep up with him. I have no idea how he he didn't die. <laughs> I mean, we're talking—you know—guys are my buddy fell off his motorcycle fifteen times. My other buddy flipped his UTV. I mean, it was just nuts.
0: Wow.
1: And um, that night, I'm sitting by the fire. I'm like, Steve, how long? You know, I said, When's your last big crash? He goes, I haven't crashed since I was a kid. So what are you talking about? <laughs> What are you talking about? There's no possible way you haven't crashed since you were a kid. You're flying on that motorcycle. We're talking doing 90 miles per hour and uh, through treacherous terrain. And he said, no, he said, he said, I really haven't. And I said, how'd you get so good? He said, you know what I do? He said, I push the envelope for a little while, maybe five minutes. And then I back off to about 60% for the rest of the hour. Then I push the envelope for five minutes. Then I back off to about 60% for the rest of the hour. He said, if you stay in that mode where you're pushing it, you're going to get in trouble. But you gotta push it every once in a while in order to get to make the sixty percent increase. So his sixty percent is everybody else's one hundred percent because mm. he's continued to push it. And I thought that is such great life advice. And anything in our career, push it and then back off. Push it and then back off. Push. It. But you've got to have these seasons where you jump into the deep end, and that may be joining a mastermind or a community or a group that where you just feel like you're out of place. But you can't live there. You're gonna get an ulcer. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> that is very well said. Yeah, I've been there, but, done you know, that.
1: Yeah, go do something <laughs> uncomfortable.
0: <laughs> oh man, really well said. That's funny. I got to ask you just to break down for us because I feel like I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't. Break down for us the framework of building a story brand and why it's so important.
1: Wow. Well, it's, it's an ancient uh, narrative framework that really probably the first guy who wrote down something like it wasn't the same was Plato in his book Poetics. And then a hundred other books have been written on the subject of narrative structure. What had never been done was taking the, the elements of story that people used to write screenplays and people used to write plays and people used to write books and turning it into a message clarification framework. And so what do I mean by that? I mean that most people, when they talk about their company, they do a terrible job describing what they do. And most of the time when they're finished, nobody wants to buy it. Hmm. And so what, what building a story brand, my book does, is it takes all that I learned about writing those those books and keeping people interested in turning the pages and uses those principles to help people be interested in what you're doing and what you're selling. And so, um, and, and, you know, there's seven elements to the, to the structure. I'll give you, I'll give you three, these three you can take with you and use and everybody listening can really experience a lot of success. If you just understand these three, that is problem product result. So, Let's say that I go, I'm at a party and there's a couple of people there who do the same thing. They're, they're um, at home chefs. They cook in your home and, I, and they both charge the exact same amount. They're just as good as each other. Not, not one of them is better than the other one. You know, they're, they're about the same. Well, you go up to one, and you say, what do you do? And they say, well, I'm an at home chef. You're probably going to say, oh, where'd you go to culinary school? And, you know, you ever cooked for anybody famous? And, you know, what are your favorite restaurants? My wife and I love to go out to eat. You're going to have a casual conversation with that person. You go to the next chef and they say, you say, what do you do? And they say, well, you know, most families don't eat together anymore. And when they do, they don't eat healthy. Well, I'm an at-home chef. I come to your house and I cook. So your family can spend really quality time connecting with each other. And when you're done eating, you don't feel guilty about what you ate. You're going to say, how do I do business with you? Sign me up. Yeah. Sign me up. Well, the first person told you what they did. The second person told you the problem they solve, the product they use to solve it, and the result that you will experience if you buy the product. What they did was they invited you into a short story. They invited you into a story in which you solve a problem with their products so that you can experience a climactic scene. Your problem is your family's not eating together anymore. The product that I want you to buy is my services as an at-home chef. And when you do, you'll experience the climactic scene of sitting around a table with your family having a great conversation and eating healthy food. What everybody would do business with the second chef because the second chef invited them into a story and the first chef told them what they did. That's what building a story brand is really about in a nutshell. It's about learning to communicate in such a way, you know, I would give speeches and get, you know, 5% of the audience would give me their email addresses when I did my call to action. After I wrote building a story brand and understood how this stuff worked, 99% often when I speak 99% of that audience will pull out their phone and give me their email address. I'm, I'm giving away the same material. It's just the second way I did it uh, was inviting people into a story.
0: What, What other areas of our life improve when you learn how to tell a good story?
1: Well, when you understand story, your entire life improves. The book that I just turned in last Thursday will come out in January, a long way away. It's called Hero on a Mission. The opening chapter of that book is called The Victim, The Villain, The Hero, and The Guide. The four roles we play in life and the one that matters most. And what that chapter basically says is, there is a victim inside you. There is a villain inside you. There is a hero inside you, and there is a guide inside And you will play all four every day, whether you like it or not. However, the more you play the victim, the worse your life is going to go. The more you play the villain, the worse your life is going to go. The more you play the hero, the better your life is going to go. And the more you play the guide, the better your life is going to go. There's two characters inside you that you do not want to bring out very often. And there are two characters that you want to live in. There are a lot of people who get stuck playing the victim character and it ruins their lives. Mm. There are a lot of people who get stuck playing the villain character and they are either killed or put in prison. People who play the heroic character face challenges, experience transformation and are richly rewarded at the end of their journey. And people who play the guide character turn around and help heroes win the day. And they ultimately experience a deep sense of meaning in life. Hmm. Really, we start as victims because we're babies and we can't help ourselves. We're all victims when we're babies. We have that long heroic journey that transforms into a guide journey as we get older and can help people win. That's the natural path of life. But if you stay victim or if you get if you get uh, sidetracked and become a villain, things get really bad. And it's not just true in your life. it's true in a given day, right? in a given day. you know, villains seek vengeance. and when we find ourselves wanting to hurt somebody because they hurt us, you're in trouble. It's, it's not going to end well for you. Uh, heroes seek justice. So somebody wrongs us. They don't seek vengeance. They seek justice. And it's very different. And, and things go well, usually for the hero. So, you know, the more you understand story, the more you can use it to direct and guide your life uh, toward better outcomes.
0: Well, hey, listen, listen, I, I don't think I could have uh, ended this on a better note. Let's go ahead and move into the final rounds. So I'm like to call the random round, just quick, random questions, quick, random answers. You ready?
1: Okay, I'm ready.
0: What profession, other than your own, do you think that it would be fun to attempt?
1: You know, it's pretty close to what I already do, but one would be a professor. I'd love to just have students for a a long period of time, for for a year, and really help transform them. That's too close to what I do to be an interesting answer. So I'm gonna say chef. I would love to be able to cook better and better and better.
0: If you could sit on a park bench with someone, past or present, and chat for an hour, who would it be?
1: Emily Dickinson. She's an American poet. Uh, out of Amherst, Massachusetts. And I found her, uh, I studied her when I was young and I, found, I find her to be fascinating. She's the one, I memorized a bunch of her poems when I was young, and she taught me an economy of words. So mm. I think because I was young and I was memorizing her poetry, she became a fascinating figure to me. I'd sit with Emily Dickinson.
0: How do you like to consume content books, audiobooks, blogs, podcasts, videos?
1: All of the above. I listen to a lot of podcasts, I listen to a lot of audiobooks, I do read every Saturday morning. I get a couple hours to do that. I read about an hour and a half a day, but Saturday morning I, I focus on books. So so books, a lot of podcasts, and that's probably it. Betsy and I fall asleep watching some Netflix series almost every night, usually a dumb comedy.
0: Nice. What are you watching right now?
1: We're going through Arrested Development for like the third time. <laughs> Great show.
0: That's, that's so funny. That's basically our type of uh, media consumption as well. It's usually just a sitcom yeah. that's on in the background. We we're just on a Modern Family kick, and now we're back onto Brooklyn 99 for Ooh. a little bit. So,
1: oh, okay, two good yeah. ones. Modern yeah. Family might have to add that to our to our punch list. It's
0: a it's a good one if you're a fan of. Yeah, yeah, I know, things, I've seen it. I've seen. Oh, it. okay, um, you have. Okay.
1: Yeah, we, we would do it again.
0: Yeah, no, it's de- yeah, it's definitely worth it. This is probably our second or third time uh, that we were going through it. And then, oh yeah, and then uh, a book and a podcast that you'd recommend to an entrepreneurial audience.
1: There are so many good ones. You know, anything by Andrew Grove. Only the paranoid succeed. Andrew Grove was Intel at, or uh, was CEO at Intel. He's a really great leader. He, he thinks like an engineer, but I really like his books. Podcasts other than yours, you know how I built this is always inspirational. You know, it's always it's always inspirational. Talking to entrepreneurs about how they built this multi-billion-dollar company or something like that, you know, it's always inspirational to know that they've struggled with the same things you're struggling with. So, so how I built this is the name of a really good podcast.
0: Give us a glimpse of your morning routine.
1: 7 a.m., usually hopefully up before then, but uh, I drink a cup of decaf coffee. (laughs) I take a a whole bowl of vitamins, (laughs) I feel like. (laughs) I do not eat breakfast uh, because I can't can't write after I eat. And so I skip breakfast. I usually go to a coffee shop or I come here. This is called the bunker. It's a room in the back of the garage that I'm talking to you from. And I work from 7 a.m., hopefully till 9 a.m., when I have a staff meeting. And then if I don't have a staff meeting, I work till 10 a.m., which is usually the next meeting. So I get two or three hours uh, almost every day to write. And uh, that's my my morning ritual.
0: What is your go-to pump-up song?
1: <laughs> I don't have one. Maybe I need one. Uh, let's see, what I really need to be pumped up is probably something from, I'm going to probably date myself, probably something from Foo Fighters. If I really want to get my blood going and get some rock and roll going.
0: What setting business aside, just general life here, what's something that you are just not very good at?
1: Everything.
0: <laughs> <laughs> everything but write. writing, right? Yeah, I
1: can write and I'm good at that. I'm pretty bad at everything else. Uh, something I'm not very good at. That's the question, right?
0: Yes. Yep. So for instance, um, I am horrible I'm not, with you know laundry.
1: What? Yeah. I am terrible at small talk at a party. I think I'm good one-on-one, but as soon as there are five or more people in the room, I can't do it. I don't know why. Somebody can reverse psychoanalyze me, but I'm not sure.
0: As we get everything wrapped up here, Don, what's one place online where you want our listeners to go connect with you the most?
1: Oh, you know, I, I do something really fun every Wednesday called Website Wednesday. And I take somebody's website and I review it and explain why I think they need to use a different tagline or a different header or a different call to action, why they need a value stack. Why you know I basically deconstruct their website.
0: Nice.
1: And then Emily on my staff, just because we have fun doing this, creates a new website for them, literally creates a PDF, not an actual website, sure. but a visual PDF of what we think their website should look like. And we've seen companies do this in double revenue. And-, uh, and I do that every Wednesday. Uh, we just started about a month ago, but you can go to com slash website, enter your domain name, and I choose 52 winners every year.
0: Nice, businessmadesimple.com slash website. If you wanna get your website analyzed by one of the best in the game, uh, definitely go check that out. And if you haven't read his book, Building a Story Brand, you have to go order that book right now and add it to your queue. Uh, I promise you will not regret it. Don, thanks so much for taking the time to come on the show today. You had a blast chatting with you.
1: Travis, thanks for having
2: me. That's it for this episode. If you want to connect with Travis and other like-minded people who also listen to the show, then you're going to want to head over to travischapel.com group to join his free Facebook group, Podcast to Profit. Travis will see you there. And remember to leave every relationship better than you found it.